Hi guys. Um, today we're going to have a chat about online affairs. We're going to talk reputational risk. We're going to talk infringement, and we're going to talk about misconduct online. In my submission, we're not moving online. We've moved, and our clients have as well. And if we're going to remain relevant in providing our clients with value, we have to understand what the marketplace for them looks like. So my goal today with this chat is to put a couple more strings on your bow or, or arrows in your quiver or whatever it might be in relation to the online space and the sort of help you'll be able to offer your clients there. So some of us remember when internet law <laughs> was a thing um, uh, and it was the sort of thing that uh, some junior lawyers agitated to have on the back of a firm's business card to make sure that potential clients knew that, uh, that, that we practiced in that space. But now, the law of the internet these days is very much war. Um, you know, it's where contracts are performed, it's where family provision suits can get unraveled, it's where the disclosure of personal information can cause serious harm, where confidences are breached. All these causes of action pop up online, and it's very much where law is in my submission. So today, I want to discuss three broad issues that I hope assist you when you're advising your clients in this area. I've given, the, I've given them names as problems, which I hope sort of, it helped me ground, ground my thinking and I hope it helps you too. Um, the first problem uh, we've got, uh, what I've loosely called the torrent problem, and we'll come and define these things and explain why I think there's value there for you as we get there. The second one is the mystery misfeasor problem. Might sound a bit clumsy, but don't worry about it. Um, the third one is the social media mismanagement problem. So we'll come to each of those and I'll be making some sort of comments about uh, problems that have arisen and then some more practical sort of what I hope you find to be insights that, uh, that will assist you. One of the big triumphs of streaming services like Stan and Netflix and these sorts of things is that online media consumption is almost entirely legitimate um, these days. But... Um, that doesn't mean that uh, online media sharing um, has become totally legitimate. There is still a lot of media shared online that infringes copyright. And so I've called this problem the torrent problem, and it's a loose definition referring to a slightly old-fashioned way of infringing uh, copyright online. And I've used it to, to make the point that I say the spectre of remote, anonymous online copyright infringement remains. And so how are we to confront uh, remote, anonymous, online copyright infringement? Well, one possible answer is site blocking orders. So I want to work through Section 115A of the Copyright Act with you. In summary, site blocking orders uh, prevent uh, carriage service providers, so essentially ISPs, internet service providers, from providing access to an online location if the purpose of that online location is the infringement of copyright. The other thing they can do is require online search providers, so search engines, um, to hide a search result if the purpose of the location in that search result is the infringement of copyright. Now, uh, without wanting to labour the point, the requirements of 115A are not necessarily complex but they are quite complicated. There are a number of steps for us to work through. So what I thought we might do 
is uh, just pay a little bit of respect to those complicated steps and work through a couple of them. Then we're going to have a chat about what I think you might be able to take from that working and then we're going to go have a look at a practical example. So um, we're going to get a little bit, um, we'll say complicated for the moment and work through section 115A of the Copyright Act. What does section 115A do? It allows a copyright owner, and we'll add a gloss to that as we progress, but I'll say owner now, um, to apply to the federal court to grant an injunction that prevents a carriage service provider, so one of our ISPs, um, from providing access to online locations that infringe or facilitate the infringement of copyright and that's their primary purpose or effect, which is to say the orders can <laughs> attach to the internet service providers, require them to disable access to online locations, websites outside of Australia that um, allow or have the primary purpose or primary effect of allowing copyright infringement. Now, as we alluded to earlier, the federal court injunctive relief I just referred to in relation to internet service providers can also apply to search engines as well in respect of search results. So, what can the injunction do? What are the sorts of things you can ask the federal court for on behalf of your clients? Now, in respect of carriage service providers, the real blunt um, answer to that is to block domain names. So just literally prevent users of that carriage service, users of that internet service provider from allowing access to site A, site B, and site C. So um, we're applying to the federal court to say, look, site A, site B, has the primary effect or primary purpose of infringing copyright. So what we want to do is we want to get an injunction pursuant to section 115A. Similarly for search engines, um, what the application would look like is you approach the federal court on behalf of your client, say that we don't want results A, B and C showing up in searches. And so what else do we have to look at for 115A? I mentioned the owner before. So there are some um, subtleties in relation to this and there's a reference to the regulations associated with the Copyright Act that we're not going to dive in too deeply for. But Section 115A on its face grants only the owner of the copyright and not, for example, the licensee the opportunity to go and seek these orders, which means that when you're advising your client or when you're having a think about whether you want to march off to the federal court, uh, we really want to make sure we've got all our ducks in a row and the very first duck at the very start of the row is to find out who owns the uh, copyright works. So I would invite you to uh, turn your mind to that as a first step. Now, um, there is a notification process relating to 115A. The owner of the copyright, your, your client, your copyright owning client, has to notify our carriage service provider if it's for ISP sort of injunctions, or the search engine party, if it's for search result type injunctions, uh, and has to do its level best to notify the operator of this remote online location. And it won't always be easy to find the operator of the remote online location for reasons that are probably fairly obvious, um, and there are mechanisms for dealing with that, and I'll direct you to the section in relation to that.
Then we then turn to the sort of meat of the section, which is section 115A sub 5, where the court is given a set of criteria that it must, it must turn its mind to in considering a section 115A application. And we won't go through all of them in chapter and verse, but I might actually bring a couple to your attention um, and we might hear a couple of echoes of some of them when we move on to one of the decisions in this area. So the court's going to bear in mind the flagrancy of any infringement. It's going to bear in mind the sort of general disregard for copyright. It's going to bear in mind whether that online location has been disabled by orders from another court or tribunal, uh, potentially from another uh, jurisdiction, another territory. And it's going to bear in mind the impact on any person. I'll just plant that seed with you and we'll, uh, we'll come back to it as we work through uh, then there's also a public interest question, uh, particularly in relation to the search engine injunction, if we can put it that way. So a lot of things for the court to consider. As we keep working through the section, uh, sub 5 capital A relates to the online location being outside of Australia, and there's a presumption that the online location is outside of Australia, and that is a rebuttable presumption um, that can be disproved, rebutted, the nature of a rebuttable presumption. All right, what else can the court do? The court, in making the injunctive relief, uh, can limit the duration of it, and on application can either rescind or vary the injunctive order so they can be changed. And while I've got your head in thinking about how you might consider advising your client, can I take you please to section 115A sub 9, uh, costs... <laughs> that important discussion you have. Um, the carriage service provider or the search engine operator is not liable to pay any costs in the proceedings, even if the application gets up, unless that search engine provider or carriage services provider appears and takes part in the proceedings. So um, the costs follow the event um, truism that happens, uh, sorry, the, the most litigators, all litigators perhaps will be familiar with, you just need to exercise a bit of caution on that. So that was our quick little trip through the nuts and bolts of the section. Can I bring a couple of matters to your attention? Um, a number, I say, arise. Um, firstly, the applicability to search engine results actually only came in in December 2018. And some of you might have offered some advices, given some advices on section 115A when it only applied to carriage service providers and not search engine providers. So can I just make sure that search engine point is firmly planted with you? Can I remind you of that ownership issue? So if you're acting for a client who wants to go and chase someone, um, we want to make sure we know who owns the copyright. We want to make sure that you are confident that your client, the applicant in the federal court proceedings, is the owner of the copyright or, or otherwise, as you work through the section, uh, complies with the regs. Right. Uh, the breadth of material the court can consider is quite broad. So we spoke about the subsection five various matters the court can consider. Uh, I invite you to conclude that there are a large number <laughs> and they're not a closed set of criteria. So when you're making your application, uh, and particularly because the application may be made ex parte, um, 
I think there's a real uh, motivation there, a real solid reason for you to think very, very carefully about ticking as many of those criteria off and perhaps even more than are within the section than you can find. I'll remind you of the rebuttable presumption about the online location being overseas. That might assist you and your client. Um, and I'll reiterate the absence of the costs follow the event. And we now are going to pivot over to say, right, we've got a bit of a grounding in section 115A now. How does an application like this work? What does it look like? Well, we're going to turn to a decision now uh, called Television Broadcasts Limited and Telstra. Uh, that was in the federal court in 2018. We are talking about television content that is produced in Cantonese for the Hong Kong market. It's available in Australia on a pay TV basis, right? So if I'm in Australia, I want to watch these shows, I've got to pay. What is also available in Australia is a set-top box. Uh, and that set-top box allows me uh, to access an online location to watch those programs without having to pay the pay TV charge. So it allows me to circumvent those charges and for me to go ahead and watch my Hong Kong TV content without having to pay for it. Now, perhaps it's not a huge surprise <laughs> to say that the copyright owner became pretty interested in these set-top boxes and made an application for Section 115A orders. And I should just add a little notation here to say that this application was made before December 2018, which you probably remember means that the application doesn't include the search engine flavoured orders. It only includes the carriage service provider, the internet service provider sort of orders. So what happened? Um, the court pretty easily and quickly determined that the purpose of these online locations was for the infringement of copyright. You, you know, your set-top box goes and talks to this online location and it causes you to watch TV shows for free um, that you would have otherwise had to pay for. So that was not a matter that distracted the court for long. Um, but that conclusion about the infringement of copyright and the primary purpose of the location led the court to the discretion question. Once it was satisfied on that point, uh, its discretion was enlivened, and so the court was forced to ask itself, should it exercise its discretion in favour of the applicant? So the court worked through those 115A little five factors, found that the infringements were flagrant. It found that non-infringing users, so our pay TV users, are not going to be negatively affected by blocking these uh, remote locations. And um, in an interesting little footnote, it also found that the disappointment that um, perhaps former Hong Kong residents, I might have resided in Hong Kong, become accustomed to watching these TV shows for free, uh, the fact that I'm a bit disappointed about now having to pay was not strictly relevant um, to the exercise of the court's discretion in relation to Section 115A. And so, having worked through those factors, the court made those site-blocking orders. Now, what normally happens when your application gets up, a costs order, can I bring you back to sub nine, uh, which means that, uh, sorry, which caused the outcome that there was no costs order made in favour of the applicant. So what can we take from our discussion of section 115A, of our discussion of one angle and what I've defined as the torrent problem? What I say 
is that 115A provides you with an in to advise your copyright owner client um, about what sort of steps they can take um, to protect themselves or, or project themselves indeed if there is some online infringing or if the uh, search results are not working as your client might uh, hope or expect them to. Right. What do I invite you to attend to? I think firstly, you, you want to have that think about your client's best interests and noting the absence of a cost order, uh, there might be a very sober discussion with your client about um, her, his, it's their expectations of what might flow from the litigation and the costs they might incur in doing it. So it's, it's trite to say that to you, but I'll just be straight up front about that costs issue and I think the rigour that, 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 that you need to, uh, to adopt when you're discussing a potential application like this with your client. Um, we want to confirm ownership. We want to deal with that copyright owner question. You don't want to find yourself tripping over your feet, um, finding out that um, you're, you're actually a licensee or something like that. When the matter comes before the court, you want to confront that issue. We want to give the notices that are required under the section and we want to closely consider those various criteria that the court have to work through in making a 115A order because, in order to improve prospects, of course, but also because um, there's a real good chance that your application may be ex parte and so you may be uh, sitting there having to convince the court of the correctness of your client's position in the absence of anyone else. So let's stay on top of those things. So what I say is, in summary, for some of your clients, the torrent problem, as I've defined it, may exist. <laughs> and if it does, section 115A might have some application for them. So now we turn to another problem that I've called the mystery misfeasor problem, um, which is a more exciting name perhaps than some people might say it deserves. But um, as, as, as we learnt with the torrent problem, there can be some difficulty identifying online misfeasors. Um, and those difficulties remain, um, notwithstanding the fact that there's more and more legitimate activity being conducted online now. Um, you can imagine a claim with reasonable prospects of, of success, a claim for tortious interference or having IP interfered with or defamation or something like that um, arising online, but you and your client being unable to identify the party who has caused this wrong um, to your client, thereby stymieing your attempts to pursue them by litigation. So what are some methods at your and your client's disposal to confront the mystery misfeasor problem? Well, um, the first one, there's every chance you're reasonably familiar with. For those of us in New South Wales, it's uh, the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules, Rule 5.2. And um, the rule applies if it appears to the court that you and your client, or sorry, your client, have made, has, has made reasonable inquiries uh, to try to ascertain the identity of someone. And um, someone other than your client may have an insight into who that potential defendant is. Um, in that case, the court can make an order that that person who has the knowledge, uh, that person who knows the wrongdoer, might, be, might have to attend court to be examined, or that person who knows the wrongdoer might have to give discovery 
of all documents relating to that application. So rule 5.2, you go ahead by summons, you prove that you've done your best to find them, uh, you then identify the person who you think ought to be examined or ought to give up their documents, and hopefully the result of that process is that you solve your mystery misfeasor problem and you identify the person that your client wants to go on and then sue. There's a common law option as well. Uh, it's called a Norwich order. And a Norwich order applies if a third party becomes mixed up in knowing the identity of a misfeasor. And the term Norwich comes from a mid-70s English decision where the Commissioner of Customs became mixed up in knowing who the infringer of some patents were. So the Commissioner of Customs was aware um, of who had done the infringing, had become mixed up in that knowledge, and in short, the um, plaintiff, the applicant, made an application that the Commissioner deliver up the identity of that wrongdoer, and the court granted um, that <laughs> application. The application succeeded, and since that decision, we've thought of those um, applications for the third party when a middle party has become mixed up in knowledge of uh, who that wrongdoer party is. We've thought of them as Norwich orders. And so today we're talking about online uh, issues and we're going to turn to an issue that popped up in relation to some tweets that were published. Now, the plaintiff or plaintiffs, and uh, we never found out the identity of the applicants in these proceedings, and come to the reasons why as we work through it. Their confidential information was being published on Twitter using a Twitter handle falsely adopting the plaintiff's CEO's identity. And it was sharing information. It was totally uncontroversial that it was confidential. It was financial stuff confidential to the plaintiffs. Uh, the plaintiffs complained to, Twitter's, uh, to Twitter and Twitter promptly took it down. Later, um, the plaintiffs asked Twitter for the identity of the publisher. Said, look, we need to chase the people who publish this stuff because we've got a cause of action there. And uh, Twitter resisted that request. We take another step forward to about a month later. There's another tweet from a different account containing similar confidential information uh, from an alias based on a different senior officer of the plaintiff or plaintiffs. The plaintiffs complained and Twitter removed the account. Then uh, we move forward another month, another two months. And there are further tweets containing confidential information from different accounts. And so the plaintiffs, they complain again. Uh, this time, Twitter did not delete the tweets and asserted that the tweets did not violate their terms of service. Now, um, just by way of quick footnote, what the court found was that was wrong, <laughs> that the tweets did, in fact, violate the terms of service, uh, including the term of service, uh, you may not use our service for any unlawful purposes. I'll leave that aside. Another month. Uh, and there are further tweets containing confidential information. Uh, and the response from Twitter was formulaic and unsatisfactory, according to the court. So uh, we have our plaintiffs commencing proceedings on the 6th of September, seeking injunctive relief, take down the tweets, prevent similar ones from being published, and seeking Norwich orders to find out who it is who's publishing this stuff. Now, um, the immediate injunctions are granted. That happens. Bang. And then a couple of days later, there are further offending tweets. And so uh, six days after that, <laughs> we move to a final hearing um, where Twitter is the respondent 
remember, because we're suing Twitter in order to in order to get an injunction to take those tweets down and in order to get our Norwich orders so that Twitter can deliver up to us um, the identity of these wrongdoers. And um, in a note sent from the email account that is support at twitter.com, Twitter advised that it did not submit uh, to the jurisdiction of the court, which was a fairly uh, brave thing to suggest. But as I said, um, the court granted the injunctions um, on a number of bases. One of them was that a third party who comes into possession of confidential information and is aware that an obligation uh, of confidence attaches to, that in, attaches to that information has that same obligation arising in respect of it. So the injunctions acted in response to Twitter's obligation now that it had notice that confidence attached to the information. The court further noted that whether a defendant submits to the court's jurisdiction is not especially relevant where the jurisdiction arises from service. Um, and also found that look, there was utility in making the orders, um, particularly that Twitter um, and its stakeholders has a commercial uh, interest in ensuring Twitter complies with the law and uh, that His Honour had no doubt that Twitter would ensure it complied with the orders. There was also a finding that the making of orders of that kind is very much in the public interest. So now we turn to the other orders. Remember, that's our injunction. We've got that. We're going to have the tweets taken down. The other part, uh, the other thing we were chasing was the Norwich orders. We want to find out the identity of the party who keeps publishing these tweets. Now, um, to give away the ending, <laughs> the Norwich orders were granted. Why were they granted? Um, they were granted because the tweets contained commercially sensitive confidential information um, because there was an available inference that the user or users of the accounts were indeed the same parties because the plaintiff doesn't know who those parties are <laughs> and um, because Twitter will have at least some of those contact details and be able to deliver them up and also because there's a foreseeable risk of significant and irreparable damage being caused by the wrongdoer's conduct if the plaintiffs can't go out there and chase them through. So, um, having done all of that, to refresh your memory, the court made those injunctions, stopped the tweets, the court granted the Norwich orders, so Twitter was forced to deliver up the uh, information about the wrongdoers. Uh, the court made suppression orders, uh, meaning that the identity of the plaintiffs would be suppressed. So do you remember how we couldn't find out if there was one or some plaintiffs? That's why there was a suppression order. Um, and um, the, in the making of the suppression orders, the court found that um, it was appropriate to make them because if the identity of the plaintiff or plaintiffs were revealed, then the whole point of the proceedings would be somewhat undone. And notwithstanding Twitter's failure to appear, or failure to quote, quote, submit to the jurisdiction, our costs followed the event. So um, our plaintiffs, whoever they may be, uh, got up on their injunction, on their Norwich orders, on their suppression order, and the costs of it. And now we turn to the social media mismanagement problem. So uh, the, the central thesis of my discussion today has been that um, our affairs are moving online. That might be somewhat relevant, but our clients are. Our clients' affairs are moving online, and I say that if we are to give our clients uh, a 
effective advice that is responsive to their needs in the way they're going out into the marketplace, then we need to be able to provide services relevant to them. So our clients or a commanding majority of them are online. And in relation to the law of defamation, that means almost all of our clients are publishers. They are off um, writing blog posts, running Facebook pages and all this other sorts of stuff um, that was not really comprehensible to us uh, just a few short years ago. So let's have a quick chat about defamation and republication. You remember how defamation works. Um, liability arises if there is material that is published, if the published matter identifies the plaintiffs, and if that published identifying material has the effect of reducing the reputation of the plaintiffs. And defamation can get a bit fiddly, but let's just deal with it in broad brushstrokes for the moment. Um, there can also, so while there can be liability for the publisher, for me, if I've gone ahead and written a newspaper article that uh, is published, it identifies the plaintiff and it reduces the plaintiff's uh, reputation. The liability might attach to me as the initial publisher of the article. There is also availability for the republisher. So the plaintiff might sue me in relation to my article, but might also go and sue someone who goes on to republish my article. If this third person consented to, approved of, adopted or ratified what I said, the plaintiff might chase me and also chase the consenter, approver, ratifier in relation to their republication. So let's work through how this might look. Um, we've got a decision uh, called Bolton and Stoltenberg, and we're taking a trip out to Narrabri, and there is a Facebook page founded. And it is a Facebook page that is critical of the mayor of Narrabri. And it says various critical things. Now, the page was run by one person who might be, think of the, uh, might, might be thought of as a sort of controlling mind who was really driving to say, yes, let's publish this material that is critical of the mayor. Yes, let's, let's press on, let's really go. And liability in respect of that controlling mind was fairly straightforward. But there was another defendant who might be thought of as someone assisting with the publication of the Facebook page. So not quite as um, <laughs> front and centre, we can put it that way, as our controlling mind. And what we're going to discuss is the liability of our second defendant. Now, what she did was she liked the page. She apparently assisted with it from time to time. Uh, and she liked a number of statuses that said critical things about the mayor of Narrabri. And she also made a number of comments. And one of them I'll draw to your attention. So you're familiar with the way Facebook works. It's that someone will publish uh, something. I like Vegemite on toast. Fine. You have an opportunity to like that or, or the various other emotions available now and you have the opportunity to comment. No way I had vegemonetized peanut butter for life, whatever, whatever it might be. And so in this case, we've got a publication being made on this page by our controlling mind who says um, it is right to be critical of the mayor of Narrabri or, or whatever it might say. And we have our second defendant, remember, who's more in a sort of assistant role, making a comment to this effect. Anyone else agree about getting the ICAC and the Minister for Local Government involved, involved need to like this post. So she's encouraging others to like the post. And so 
what the court was asked was, well, um, do these likes, do her various likes to these posts constitute republication? And the republication, approval, ratification, consent, these sorts of things. Um, so do the likes do that and do the comments do that? Well, in short, the position was um, the likes don't. Um, they weren't sufficiently uh, endorsing to constitute publication, but the comment that had the effect of encouraging others to agree with what was said, that was found to be republication and so was found to be sufficient to found a defamation suit against our second defendant. The liability arose from the comment but not the like. So um, something to bear in mind perhaps when managing social media accounts. Can I just add a footnote to that particular decision? Look, it's important to bear in mind that the finding in relation to likes was based on limited evidence and there's an available view that I'm, that I'm not going to comment on in depth um, that liking something, despite the finding in that case, is capable of constituting republication. So there's an argument about that that I will not engage in, certainly will not do so today, um, but uh, it just adds, I say, adds a bit of weight the caution that your clients ought to be exercising when they're online, that um, we found is there a comment found at a defamation suit and there's a suggestion that a like may be able to do the same thing. So be careful with those misplaced hearts. And so that's about all I had to share with you today. Um, a couple of closing thoughts that I hope assist to ground our discussion. Uh, I'll repeat my view that the internet is no longer a space separate from the normal marketplace. Um, it now is very much where our clients do business, where their family provision claims are scuttled, where insurers are off investigating facts and all this sort of thing. So um, in order to best assist your clients, I say an understanding of what um, methods are available to assist your client in that online space, I say is a really useful set of strings to add to your bow. Um, today, we discussed some problems your clients might be facing. We discussed the time problem and how Section 115A might be able to assist. Remember those site blocking orders, those search engine orders. Um, we discussed the mystery misfeasor problem and remember how we might um, either file a summons pursuant to Rule 5.2 or we might chase a party like Twitter for orders like those Norwich orders. And we discussed the social media mismanagement problem and how. Um, our clients need to be careful with the way they're running their social media accounts. And uh, my hope is that you found today's discussion a bit of, uh, I hope you found a bit of value there uh, and I want to thank you very kindly for your time.